This is Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we will talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We'll talk about relationships in politics, social media and film, public speaking, and private talk. In this podcast, we will offer straightforward but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. I'm speaking today with Dr. Tom Dunn. Dr. Dunn is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies at Colorado State University. He holds the Monfort Professorship, one of CSU's most prestigious awards for excellence in scholarship. He's the author of Queerly Remembered Rhetorics for Representing the GLBTQ Past. Tom is also an award-winning teacher, and he brings this passion for teaching to his role as director of the basic course in the Department of Communication Studies and as the College of Liberal Arts Master Teacher Initiative Coordinator. Dr. Dunn, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Thanks for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tom, could, could we start by telling us a little bit about what you do here at Colorado State University? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I think you covered a lot of the things that I did do in the introduction. Uh, I obviously do a few things above and beyond that, as all faculty do. But yeah, when I think about what I spend most of my time doing here, it breaks down into a couple things, right? Obviously, I am a faculty member who has research as a part of what I do. And so a lot of my Time, particularly now with the Montfort Professor Award, uh, is spent on researching. And my research area, as you sort of suggested, really focuses on the rhetorics of LGBTQ people and the ways that they use their shared understanding of the past to advocate for social, political, and cultural change today. So doing some work on that, working on a, a new book project connected to that. Um, the other things that I spend a lot of time doing on campus, obviously teaching is a big part of that as well. Uh, I'm teaching a little bit less right now because of the Monfort Award, but I do tend to teach a lot of coursework in the graduate program and in the undergraduate program around introductory courses in rhetoric. What is rhetoric? What do we do? What has rhetoric been through history and through time? Uh, visual rhetoric, queer theory connected to issues around rhetoric. But a big part of my job is also being the director of the basic course, which means overseeing all the public speaking classes on campus, which our students, some some of them love and some of them hate, but it doesn't really matter that many of them still have to take it. And so I, I oversee those uh, classes, train a lot of our instructors in those areas and, and do some of the administrative work on that. So obviously our faculty do lots of other things on top of that, but those are the three big ones, I think. I think that that's, that's a super helpful kind of overview of what you do. And for folks listening to the podcast, get a sense of the ways in which faculty are spread across uh, multiple areas that draw on different kinds of skills. Yeah, faculty are always running in a hundred different directions, or at least if they're doing their job well, they're, they're, they're probably not focused on one thing for any for too long an amount of time. Right. That, that seems really true in my life. <laughs> As you noted, you've done tons of work on memory, public discourse, queer identities. You've written a lot about um, non-traditionally rhetorical texts like monuments and graveyards. Can you talk with me a little bit about how you see memory, public spaces, and other public discourses weaving together in, in our contemporary world? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question, Greg, right? Because uh, particularly for those of us who study rhetoric, and, and particularly those of us who are trained in some more traditional notions of what rhetoric is, right? This image of somebody standing at a podium, uh, giving a speech, talking to an audience, trying to implement a program of change or something along those lines. Some of the things around rhetoric that, that people like I'm doing and people like you are doing, you know, are a little different and, and don't always uh, make a lot of sense, right? On one hand, there's this dimension of public memory, which is all about 
thinking about the ways that uh, people in these very traditional but also non-traditional roles of the speaker or the rhetor use the past to sort of shape our understandings and our engagement and our motivation to do things in the world. But very little up until the last couple decades has been focused on doing that in a spatialized kind of way, doing that in a place, as a body in a space, as a body in, in motion, right? And it's kind of funny because it's always been the case that space has been a dimension of what we do when we do rhetoric, right? A, a speaker at a podium is still always in space, right? Their audience is always embodied in some kind of way. And so when we think about those connections between memory and rhetoric and some, some very traditional notions of advocating for change, the kind of things that a lot of rhetoricians think that they do, right? Some of it, on one hand, I think is about going back to things we've always done and enriching and enlivening those understandings of those past things in more compelling ways, paying attention to things that we thought weren't important in the past and making them more important. But part of the exciting stuff, I think, is also thinking about how people today with this recognition use these tools more effectively in, in different kind of ways, right? How do, how do people use space and the past and rhetoric to do rhetoric in different ways? How do they, how do they sort of drive these new conversations? So I always, my, my example to undergraduate students here, which I always like, is a few years before marijuana was legalized here in Colorado, 420 was a big celebration in the state for a variety of people. CU Boulder had some problems with this. And so one year, instead of the university sort of banning the, the speeches and the partying and the things that people did to sort of advocate for that, they just decided to lay down a bunch of manure on the field that they, they, they that was going to take place on. And that was just a very spatially oriented way to be like, you know, we're not going to have a big fight with you about this. We're just going to make the space that you inhabit not particularly comfortable and nice and therefore... That's going to shape the discourse in ways that um, you may or may not be able to understand. So, so uh, not to, to give a plug here to see you bolder in any way, shape, or form, but an interesting example of, of, of some of the new different ways that people engage with space that uh, we can think of as rhetoric today, and that, that makes it pretty exciting. Yeah, so you're, you, you touch on the ways in which really traditional concerns of communication studies or rhetorical studies intersects with these non-traditional concerns about like space and place. And, and certainly we've seen a lot of that over the last few months and years as, as people re-enter the urban space, even in a time of COVID, for the purpose of advocating for, for social change. And so that, that's thinking about those non-speaker behind the podium aspects is a, is a really important thing that we do. At the same time, you focus a lot of your time and attention on training students to get behind a podium to give a speech through the public speaking program. So what, why, why, considering that we just talked about the importance of these non-traditional things, why do we keep doing that training? What, what's the role of that training and then what it leads to? What's the role of that in a really rich and vibrant civic culture? Yeah, it's, it's funny to me that I'm so interested in some of these less traditional rhetoric things. And yet the reason I study all of this stuff is because I fell in love with public speaking <laughs> as a high school student and then as a college student. And, and that's really been the basis of my career, right? Uh, you know, I was the little kid who asked permission to stay up to watch, you know, uh, late night presidential speeches because I just thought they were cool when I was a little kid, right? I don't know how many people do that. And I know very few of my public speaking students probably do that. But it, I think it belies the fact that the, while rhetoric and what we do in communication studies has now broadened beyond this really narrow perspective of speech, 
there's still a really important role for speech in what we do in the discipline, but also what we do here at CSU, which is to create citizens for the, the 21st century, mm -hmm. right? And that requires different ways of approaching that. On one level, that requires us to continue to teach the things that we've always taught about public speaking that matter, right? I do think there's some discourses out there that say, oh, you know, big, important speeches don't matter the way that they used to. They're very expected in certain ways. People get very meta about them sometimes, and they look for the ways that they're trying to have, be hoodwinked in the process of doing that. Some people are really cynical about public speaking. But sometimes that's a reflection of the, the focus that we put on these great, powerful speakers, and it ignores the very different everyday ways that public speaking is still a big part of our lives. I tell our, our undergraduate students all the time, right? You might not want to be Barack Obama or Donald Trump or one of these, you know, big, um, important political leaders who are giving speeches. But you probably want to be able to show up for your family at an important family event, whether that's a eulogy or or to toast your brother's wedding or to even be able to say something uh, that, that matters to you in a context that maybe doesn't fit the traditional mode of public speaking. But you want to be there for yourself. And, and in a very classical sense, in a very traditional sense, going back to Aristotle, right, learning how to speak well is the only way that we make sure we can counteract people's good speaking skills when they're doing them for poor reasons, when they're doing them for unhelpful or uncivil uh, kind of reasons, right? By the same token, we also can't teach public speaking only the way that it's ta been taught before. That includes a bunch of things like not just privileging one kind of public speaking that largely white, uh, wealthy men uh, did in Europe and the United States for centuries and centuries. We have to be open to other ways of thinking about what public speaking is different ways of doing public speaking, even things like, you know, one of the things we do in the class is we talk not just about visual aids, but we talk about all the different parts of the human body and how we can appeal to those in different ways, right? So we talk about olfactory aids, right? The ways that you can bring in smells into uh, something to advocate uh, and change your public speaking, going back to the CU Boulder example, or tangible objects that, that are brought in here. Thinking about, and this is very COVID topic appropriate here, right? But thinking about what does it mean to be a public speaker in a digital world? is something we've really tried to pioneer in our newer uh, textbook in the course. And so, yeah, there's a lot of reasons we do that. But I, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the idea that public speaking has always been important for doing the citizenship work of what uh, democracy requires. And while it might not look exactly the same as it always did, our 21st century democracy still is going to need a 21st century public speaking to make that happen. So, so I heard so many things in that 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 really resonate for me. The the bringing together of the uh, sense that we really have to be able to show up orally with mm -hmm. with our with our people to be able to give some sort of a speech, even if it's just mm -hmm. in the context of our family when we discuss what whatever is going on in our lives, with an understanding that 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 communication is is different because of the twenty first century. So, how do we weave those things together? You, you began to touch on it. The, those kind of the sense that we're in the 21st century, um, that the problems confronting us may be different, the modes by which we engage them may be different digitally or spatially or olfactorily <laughs> um, may be different. But but there are also these really deep uh, traditions of thinking about doing stuff in public together around controversies. What what in the teaching of these two different things, these two related but different things, kind of what's some wisdom that that's come out of that for you? Well, you know, I think one of the things that really comes through when I think both about teaching public speaking well today and doing public speaking well today 
and also these more maybe non-traditional things about rhetoric that I'm interested in and, and some of the, the social movement work that we see going on in our society today is the real importance of something, authenticity, for instance, right? Authenticity is something that, you know, in many ways doesn't come up a lot in the traditional way we think about public speaking, right? There's ways of doing it professionally or ways of doing it emotionally or ways of doing it logically, right? But the word authenticity doesn't tend to come up a lot. And yet, one of the things that I think is very true about the generations of people who are out there and interested in change is not just hearing a speech from somebody, but to hear somebody authentically say what they actually believe, not to give them the line, not to give them the BS, right? But to genuinely be vulnerable, to say something risky, to say something true. A lot of our old models of public speaking aren't always teaching people how to do that. And yet a lot of the social change that we're, people are asking for and, and the change the motivation for that change, identification with the leaders of some of these movements that people are craving don't work unless that includes authenticity, right? And so I think that's just one example of, in some ways, a tension between these traditional and, and non-traditional dimensions of what communication studies and rhetoric has, has focused on. But it's also a rich opportunity for thinking about what change demands today to change what public speaking has been and for, therefore, a responsive form of public speaking to be a useful and meaningful and valuable way of making that change happen in a way that, that I don't think people are always paying attention to, right? It's not that public speaking no longer affects people the way that it used to. It's that if you give a speech like you did in the 1820s, it's probably not going to ring true to a, a bunch of college-age students and Generation Z and millennial folks who are out there now who are craving the the, the same levels and kinds of changes that people during earlier centuries wanted. It's about, as per everything else, right, recognizing the situation that you are in and adapting it accordingly. So some some classical knowledge here that sort of transcends all of these um, very rapidly and quickly changing things, right? But particularly, again, in the face of COVID, I think people are going to come out of this really craving those face-to-face -face interactions in a way that Maybe they took for granted for a long time. And, and public speaking, I think, is going to be one place where we see that happen. So, so a showing up authentically to mm -hmm. each other in, in, our, in our communication and the various modes. So that may be something that's characteristic of this moment. But the other thing you said that's so old is that notion that, that successful communication, successful rhetoric will be responsive to the person I'm with and to the context I'm in, that, that, it, that it's situational and, and changing. Not, not in a kind of, we don't know for sure, but more in a like, this is the moment we're in and we need to respond thoughtfully to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's just so important. That's one of, uh, in a variety of the classes that I teach in the department, right? That's a, a message that we try to hit home all the, the time, right? When we do communication well, it's not communication for the ages. It's communication for the moment. Uh, and that's the moment changes, that communication has to change. I, I frequently use the metaphor of, rhetoric and, and public speaking and communication being a Swiss army knife, right? That it's something you keep in your back pocket and that it gives you 20 different things to help you in a situation that you might not know you're going to end up in just yet, but you really are happy to have it in that moment um, and, and to have lots of different tools to help you out, not just one. I like that metaphor a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to share one just because it struck me. I, I think of rhetoric or at least the history of rhetorical theory, those kind of principles of rhetoric as a philosophy with wheels on it. <laughs> it, you actually have to be able to drive the thing down the road um, for, for it to be rhetoric. It has to have some usefulness in, yeah. in the moment we're in. That's a great one. 
what one last i have two 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 more questions but one one more that's conversational which is um we we talk a lot especially as we have so much controversy about freedom of speech mm-hmm. i have the right to say at least in public whatever i jolly well wish the public speaking classroom is a place this shows up it's a place we enact this or don't in some way or another but we also help ourselves understand if if i have the freedom of speech freedom of speech, freedom of expression. What does that mean for me as a citizen? So, so what, as you've reflected on your years of doing, doing this work, how would you think about freedom of speech? What would you say to people about freedom of speech? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky subject in the last couple of years, right? For, for decades and decades and decades, I think freedom of speech was something that people just kind of took for granted um, in a way that it was, you know, it was guaranteed and, you know, people could say controversial things, but it wasn't as, on the cusp of, of touching off so many nerves as it does today, right? There, there's a lot about the partisanship of our current moment. There's a lot about the, the ways that people use the term free speech. There's an active cultivating of intentionally saying something controversial to rile up or uh, disrupt the norms of, you know, what's uh, considered good behavior or well-established beliefs or shared values. So, so public speaking here, and uh, well, I should say more, more specifically, free speech here, I think, has been almost weaponized in a way, right? That it that it hasn't been in, not all times in our history, but recent times in our history to a, to a certain degree. And so, thinking about free speech as a simple idea, I think, gets us in trouble a lot in our current moment, um, because it, it's well, it is a simple principle, and that's one of the the beauties of it. It's execution and its uptake in any given moment can be really complicated than that. And we we hear this feedback in the public speaking classroom all the time um, from students who say things like, uh, I know I should, uh, I'm supposed to respect the right of free speech. And yet there's somebody here who's saying things that are threatening my livelihood, that are threatening my security and my sense of self, that are calling into question the existence of people I love in the world, right? And those are things that I, I, I'm morally compelled to in other ways to respond to and, and to try to stop, right? And so the question then becomes, knowing now that, that free speech is being used in those ways, how do we, I don't, I don't think the answer is to put the genie back in the bottle and say, let's just make freedom of speech boring again, right? I, I think the, the, the question is, Education on one level, right? Really engaging in a, in a way that that we haven't before. A dynamic understanding of what free speech is, right? For all the good, the bad, and the ugly there, right? And acknowledging that there's a lot of ugly that comes with uh, free speech, but that's that that's how the principle is upheld, right? By protecting the good and protecting the bad and the ugly, that's how sort of the free speech dimension maintains its meaningfulness and maintains its its value. And that's not obvious to people. People need to be taught that and they need to be shown the research and the ideas and the previous experiences that people have with that, right? Uh, research shows over and over and over again, the moment a society limits free speech, the people who are most negatively impacted by that tend to be those in the minority, right? Um, and so a lot of times we hear minority voices saying, you know, let's constrain the free speech of people, but research tends to show that it has the exact opposite effect. That doesn't mean those concerns aren't meaningful, but it does mean then what we need to find other ways to doing 
uh, of engaging free speech. And the best one is, therefore, more speech, right? The safest, most legal, most historically effective way to combat speech we don't like is to do more speech, more speech, more speech to to drown out the speech that we don't like with the speech that we do like. Right. And sometimes it's not that easy. Right. Sometimes it's going to be 50 50 and it works its way through on issues like that for decades and decades and decades. In these moments, I think it's really important for us to recognize the dynamic evolution of how this term free speech is being used to draw from some of the lessons of history that we have that about why we have that, you know, the First Amendment of Bill of Rights and, and why this is something that still matters and that much like everything else that we've talked about today, it needs to be taken up situationally. Um, and in all, almost every case, the best thing we can do is to give more speech and not do less speech, which is another good plug for the public speaking class. I'm struck by we started with the, the question of memory. <laughs> and, and and we're kind of ending there that the, the remembering of the struggles for freedom of speech, mm-hmm. for free speech, the struggles that led to the First Amendment, the struggles over the right to speak for so many people in the U.S. to speak openly and fully remembering those and bringing those into the present can help guide us perhaps in, in the present and for the future. And it's on that note that I, I want to finish speaking well, the podcast tries to bring this kind of pretty deep thinking about human communication and then leave our listeners with one or two ways forward, a couple of ideas. Like if, if you took something from this, here's something you could do. So, so what are a couple of life hacks? Yeah, this is something we spend a lot of time thinking about in public speaking, right? Because mm-hmm. that class is designed for general audiences, right? It's not designed for the expert communication person who's already great at doing this, right? So we spend a lot of time thinking about what are the practical takeaways that you have to have. There's a long list, I think, but if I had to narrow it down, one I'd just throw out really quickly is sort of this recognition that all speech is situational. And so if you go into any public situations setting and think, oh, I'll just give the speech I gave last time, you're already in trouble, right? Because the situation will inherently not be the same. There are a lot of problems with people buying, for instance, a speech offline um, that that are problematic. But one of the biggest problems is it's almost certainly going to fail, right? So you're wasting your money on the first level, besides the fact that it's an academic integrity violation. There's lots of other problems there. Um, But I think the other two big ones that I always think about, number one, please have an argument by which, you know, in the class we say, please have a thesis, meaning know why you're speaking and Be very clear with your audience about what you want to say. Nobody wants to listen to a speech, whether it be long or short, that doesn't seem to know where it's going. Um, And so having a really clear statement right off the bat that this is why I'm here, this is what I want to do, um, and even saying it multiple times in a speech is super important. If, as a a speaker, you don't know why you're supposed to be speaking, maybe you shouldn't be. I think that's some good practical advice. The other part of it, and I think this is uh, something I try to tell students all the time, Most people in their heads, when they think about public speaking, have these very historic, eloquent sort of moments of public speaking locked in their memories, cultural memories, individual memories of Martin Luther King Jr. or, you know, Ronald Reagan or, you know, pick some sort of historic figure and their great eloquence that they sort of bring with them. For most of us on the everyday level, that's not what we should be shooting for, right? Uh, And when we try to make every speech be a you know, Challenger address or Gettysburg address, we're also probably setting ourselves up for failure because it doesn't necessarily need to be that. And again, going back to that authenticity point, probably not what people are looking for. So I try to tell students a lot that in addition to having a good central argument, you know, 
be casual in your presentation of, of these ideas, right? Most people, at least in the U.S. European context, tend to respond really well when they feel like they're having a conversation with somebody. Even if it's more of a one-sided conversation where it's happening in a public speaking kind of setting, you know, save that eloquence, save those, those that beautiful language for those special occasions. There, there's still an important place for those things. But for most of us, when we are, you know, giving a speech in class or talking to our friends or talking about politics or giving a toast at a, at a friend's wedding, the heartfelt, the genuine, the casual, the conversational, that's really what we're shooting for. And so it's not the same saying speak from the heart because that I think is a, a bit of a cop out advice uh, that, <laughs> that can go off the rails really quickly. But being casual in the language that you're, you're, you're trying to use. And trying to just talk to people in a way that that's going to resonate and be understandable and that's going to leave the impression that you want to leave with people uh, is another good practical tip. So, so I hear you saying, remember that we're speaking in a situation. Correct. Have a purpose. Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> and, and engage your audience. Absolutely. In some authentic way that says, here I am as a speaker, there you are as an audience and let's connect. Yeah, it sounds pretty simple. It's a little harder, actually, to, hard to, to, do. to do it well, but it's not as hard as people think. And a little bit of practice, public speaking, uh, and lots of forms of communication can be a really achievable skill for for anybody. And, and I don't think anybody is ever going to not benefit from that experience. It's always just another another tool in the toolkit that you can use. might be 30 years from now, but you'll be happy you have it when you do. Really wonderful. Tom, to, to speak with you today. Thanks for taking time and uh, thanks for the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. Thanks for the chat. Always lovely. Speaking Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies and the College of Liberal Arts at Colorado State University. Carol Bush as the producer and the podcast is recorded and engineered at the studios of KCSU at Colorado State University. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. Until next time, be well.